0: You're listening to The MEX Podcast, where we explore user behavior, emerging technologies, and how to design better digital experiences.
1: Their daughter had a fear of animals, and they were finding that playing the game was Uh, helping her cope with her fear of animals, which is a lovely thing. And she actually carries around one of our physical artifacts now to hold onto if she gets scared of an animal outside. And that's lovely because that's something that we wouldn't have thought in a million years. But, you know, that's what happens if you make something that people can bond to.
0: I'm Marek Pawlowski, founder of MEX, and that was Tim Burrell-Saywood, lead designer at the startup gaming company Sensible Object. And he was sharing some of the unexpected and I guess... Unexpectedly delightful surprises he's come across while working at the intersection of physical and digital experience design. I'm going to tell you a bit more about Tim and why I asked him to come on the show, but before I do that, uh, I'd like to make a suggestion. Go and take a look at the video of Tim's game, Beasts of Balance, in action. I think the rest of this podcast will make a whole lot more sense if you just take a moment, hit pause, Uh, and go off and Google Beasts of Balance or look it up on YouTube uh, or head over to mobileuserexperience.com and take a look at the video that we've embedded in the show notes. Okay, good. You're back. You're sitting comfortably again. Let's get back into it. So, one way or another, I've spent 20 odd years just trying to keep track of interesting new digital things. And when you've been doing that for that amount of time, you get to a point when spotting something novel, something genuinely new, becomes harder and harder. But I think Beasts of Balance is exactly that. I mean, Tim quite modestly describes it as a bit like Jenga and Pokemon combined. But I think it's actually rather more than that. I mean, yes, it's Jenga-like in that... You're trying to balance lots of physical pieces. And yes, it's Pokemon-like because there's this world of compelling characters out there to fuel your imagination. However, it's also got the potential to be that rare thing, a piece of experience design, where the physical and the digital elements are combining in a way that is greater than the sum of their parts. The things that you're doing with the physical pieces fuel creative developments within the digital dimension the data from that digital sphere is flowing back to the game designers allowing them to iterate future versions it's right in that frontier space where i think some of the most exciting experience design work is happening right now that area of multi-touchpoint design So Tim himself is the lead designer in a pretty diverse team of gaming, coding, design experts at Sensible Object. They're working out of Makerversity, this vibrant community of doers and and makers, which is holed up in the basement of Somerset House on the Thames in London. But he's also another of the growing list of people in the MEX community who got involved in digital experience design from a, a somewhat oblique angle. Uh, I mean, in his case, he started out in the world of architecture and, and, and physical building design. So before we get into the interview, um, what else do I need to tell you about? Yes, Mex jobs. Uh, the list of curated roles, all of which we've picked because they reflect the user-centered design values of the Mex community. This is continuing to grow. Uh, our friends at Capital One, for instance, who are building out their design team in London, they're still hiring. Um, there are also roles up there for Sony, uh, roles for a big publishing company. There's even a remote first role for a user experience testing company. So, if you'd like to take a look at who's hiring out there in the community, whether your next job might be just around the corner, head over to mobileuserexperience.com/jobs. Uh, and of course, if you're recruiting at the moment for your teams, Um, you can post your own roles. Uh, It's £139 plus VAT. Um, That gets you 30 days uh, for the listening and you'll be reaching everyone in the MEX community, not just through this podcast, but through all of our other MEX channels as well. So let's get into it with Tim and I will be back at the end with some final thoughts. Here we go. (music) Tim, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me. Now, I guess the reason why we got in touch in the first place was this intriguing game, Beasts of Balance, that you have been working on, which is bridging the worlds of of physical and digital design. But before we get stuck into that, I'm, I'm curious, because you've ended up doing this very interesting role. But was that a predestined path for you? Yeah, looking back, how do you feel about how that path has evolved? <laughs> has it been a, a winding journey?
1: It's it's definitely been a winding journey. Yeah. Um, so uh, first of all, thanks for inviting me on. Very excited to be able to talk about this kind of thing. So to answer your question, it's <laughs> the 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 role that I find myself filling now is definitely not something that I well, a I knew existed when I was uh, you know a, a few years. Earlier in my career, and B, I certainly didn't know how to translate the uh, skills that I'd accumulated over to it. So, yeah, my ten-year-old my self is very happy with with what I'm doing now. Um, so, to go right back, I, I'm a industrial designer, I, I guess, or, or certainly that's what I that's what I was trained in at university. I studied in Brighton, and graduated in 2005, and. The course that I studied was very—it um, was very centred around mechanical learning, and that you know the theory of how things are made. But it wasn't particularly great in equipping students with the skills to uh, things like critical thinking, for instance. So it's it's all well and good to know how to make something, but why you should make something, or, or even what what you want to make, is an entirely different skill. So upon graduating, I did what most. Um, most fresh graduates did, and I I tried my hardest to get a job, any job, and I actually ended up working in architecture for about four and a half years, specifically in lighting. So for the best part of five years, I I worked on large architectural projects, um, designing light fittings, but also primarily designing the architectural layouts for, for where those light fittings should go. So... Um, that was quite an interesting transition. Uh, again, not something that I was planning on, but it really opened me up to an interesting way of working. So architects and architecture is a, is a very different discipline than any other type of design I've worked in. Um, it really teaches you quickly that you need to be very disciplined with your time. Uh, it's a, it, needs, it demands efficiencies just because of the scale and the speed that these things work at. Um, and it's cross-disciplinary as well, so you have to work well with other people. So through the the time that I was working there, I worked on everything from listed buildings in London to skyscrapers in Dubai to lighting. To so kind of, uh, I, I worked on a festival in um, in Kuala Lumpur. So I I put some miles in, and it really opened my eyes to the fact that the built environment. And our environments in general don't have to be static um, places that we, that we kind of transition through. They can, they can engage us and they can uh, entertain us and they can inform us. And that's all just by using the materials of the built environment.
0: Was there an element of um, systematic thinking there which would have um, that the work that you are doing in architecture. I mean it's a, a bit of an unknown area to me but it's always struck yeah. me that there are quite a few similarities to the way in which architects have to have that overarching view of what it is they're trying to deliver into the built environment and some of the challenges which are now being taken on by people working in areas around digital transformation.
1: Yeah absolutely. I, um, I think it, it absolutely does rely on a good understanding of, of the well both both the systems in play but also um, the, the materials that you have to that you have to play with um, and something that probably also has parallels is the fact that it's um, it's constantly in in flux it's constantly changing the the even just the way that we use the spaces that we inhabit is changing faster than the buildings that we're living in um, can keep up so being part of or having experience the the care and thought um that goes into making sure that the users for want of a better word of a building get the best out of it they have the best experience and i think there's pretty strong parallels with um lots of other facets of design to be honest it's it, a lot of it's just about figuring out who you are designing for and their requirements and then using the building blocks that you have to make sure that you you kind of hit all of those uh, criteria i think
0: so how long did the interest in architecture continue i can tell you it continued until it Took more
1: out of me than I was able to give. Architecture is a uh, is an unforgiving profession. So I I worked on it until uh, it was causing me. Um, it, it was causing me health problems just because of the the stress involved in the the projects. Because something that you might not think at first glance, but an architect isn't just going to be working on one building. You know, if if an average lifespan from start to finish could be you know, four or five years, um, they're going to have five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 different projects all running in parallel. Um, and all of those will demand your undivided attention. So
0: that's a tremendous was, amount of complexity to be juggling.
1: It really is. And you, and you know, evidently errors are made. Um, when you're talking about something that exists in the physical space, it's always difficult to fix those errors. Um, in a timely and cost-effective manner so yeah i had a couple of experiences that left a slightly sour taste in my mouth um and also by that point i could see that the next part of my career could have just been more of the same and that's fine for you know for, for some but i having come from an education and, and just a passion for, for for making things physical things i could see that i was eventually gonna become uh you know light light is a great material but it's not the only material so when you're you're only using one material day in day out you start to pine for for all of the other things the forbidden fruits that you're not touching yeah so so that marked the the decision for me to stop and it and it was literally i i I went in one day and said, I, you know, I, I can't do this anymore. Um, I need to, I need to make a change. And so I handed in my, my notice and finished off my projects and tried to figure out what, what came next. So that was a, that was the first of several, um, kind of uh, steps into the unknown that I've taken <laughs> over the years.
0: Well, it, it uh, sounds like, yeah, quite a challenging place to, to be. And, and what did come next? What what was the, the, yeah. the first thing? And, and how did that start to lead you towards, you know, working with companies more in the digital space?
1: For me, there's nothing scarier than a blank piece of paper. You know, um, unlimited opportunities always tend to result in me sitting there not knowing what to do. So I decided I picked something that I was... I was interested in and I wanted to know more about, which was actually interaction design. So uh, architects treat interaction s- the, what they would call interaction design so probably slightly differently than the you know the, the traditional sense of the word. Um, but I was just interested in studying the ways in which people use things. Um, so I took myself off to Copenhagen for a short period of time to study at the Copenhagen Institute of Interaction Design, um, which was kind of acted as a primer for people who were like me. So they came from some kind of design discipline and they wanted some academic support in um, figuring out the interesting parts of their particular specialties that could benefit from really Concentrating on the way that people use things so that's for me focused on using the at the time it was it was using the built environment um and trying to augment it with technology to produce uh i guess you could refer to it as experiences that would help people get more enjoyment or, or more information or just uh you know find more in the spaces that they inhabit
0: and what year was this uh,
1: this would have been 2010 i think
0: okay and i mean I what think. for you was kind of state of the art in that field at the yeah. time you're yeah, looking at it from an academic perspective were there things that were really catching your attention as um, driving that that all forward
1: yeah so i i usually approach things from a technology drive point of view so i'm i always get excited with uh, new technologies and specifically taking them and um Sticking them together with other technologies to see what interesting things come out. So at the time It was driven my interest and and this was shared by the the uh, Institute in Copenhagen It was a time when there were some really interesting physical technology platforms that were coming into emergence So Arduino for instance, and um, so while I was there uh, if, I'm sure your listeners know, will know, how do we know? But if not, it's a, it's a small, very small, affordable electronics po- prototyping platform that lets you take things like, uh, for instance, an LED and with a couple of wires, you can plug it in, you can write a few lines of code and you can get the LED to blink or, you know, uh, do, do whatever you want an LED to do. But then the nice thing about it is um, because of the way it's been designed, it has various different inputs and outputs that let you link that LED with other things. So for instance, you might set your LED to blink every time you receive a tweet. This is all, I mean, at the time, this is kind of old hat now for, 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 the, um, for, the, for these kind of prototyping platforms. But at the time, that was pretty revolutionary. The idea of... A physical output being able to be uh, actuated by a digital input was uh, um, was incredible because all of a sudden you have spaces that can sense and react to the people in them or the you know the data that might be floating around these spaces. So for me, it became the the main interest was um, okay, let's let's see if we can tell stories in physical spaces using data that might be uh, generated by the people using them or might be kind of ambiently in the systems that the building already has or even you know the state of the the world at large or or, you know all of these quite opaque systems that we see where maybe perhaps we only see the output so we might see a, a website a single page that serves up quite binary facts and figures but behind that there's a world of information that is is there and it's all moving and it's all changing and it struck me as it was something that should be focused on because it was it was it's quite it's quite a new thing for us as a as a developed species to have all of these uh all of these different um systems just gathering information and and talking amongst themselves so you know there's i think there's some interesting or at the time anyway there was some really interesting scope into revealing some of those Hidden systems.
0: Oh, I think you're absolutely right. It was a fascinating time. And I sort of wonder when, if we project forward into a future which increasingly looks like it's going to be um, about digital being rather more pervasive in the life, buildings, the air around us. How significant that sort of 2010 timeframe, the emergence of things like Arduino will be seen as? Because you're right, it did mark a bit of a, a watershed moment when digital experiences suddenly were no longer constrained to the frame of the device that you held in your hand or sat on the desk in front of you it could be something which was all around you in a much more ambient way and and while a lot of the things from that era now we look back on and think of as being quite simplistic it it was the starting point um, of Mm. that whole sort of concept
1: i think so and the other way to the other important thing about that time is there was a certain amount of democratization i guess of these of these technologies these systems were affordable and accessible enough that anybody could um could get their hands on them and try this thing so, so it meant that you, you weren't just they weren't being used to for instance sell your product or they they shouldn't have been being used to just sell your product which is what they might have been used before you can imagine like a, a nike or something producing some big huge uh fantastic uh, installation for something like i don't know the south by southwest festival or something like that and and they're doing that purely to sell their their things. But the really interesting stuff around the time of Arduino was um, you just had people off the street just making things that they thought were interesting. And there were subsequently, uh, there were a lot of project, projects that came out that had no commercial value at all. That's fantastic. But they were they were either fantastic artistic endeavors or they were like beautiful data visualization um, examples or they were just doing really interesting things that sparked other people to in turn pick up the platforms and make their own things so i think there's two there's two parts there's definitely the um the the emergence of the idea of you know uh, information not being attached a screen, but then also this this really fundamental idea that you could just you could do it yourself, you know, very easily. It's 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 a it's a fantastic thing, and it's still it's still here. You can see, so for instance, the, there's a coding platform called Unity that we use. It's a games platform, um, but it's uh, very accessible. It has a very friendly business model for for small independent designers, and I see parallels between what they're doing. Um, and what arduino are doing i i I think even unity might be older than arduino but there's still it seems to be more ingrained now this idea of you don't have to spend huge amounts of money for pieces of software you don't have to necessarily spend years learning them and honing your code and then find a partner who can give you the funding to do this grand thing you can just do it it's a good time
0: so, what does that mean for companies like the organisation you're working for now, Sensible Object, and, and when you're creating something like this game, Beasts of Balance? Mm-hmm. Because you know, this is very much an example of uh, how you can create an overall experience that, that straddles the, the virtual and the physical worlds. So, you know, building on some of those those earlier experiences that you were having um, around the, the 2010 timeframe, but. Yeah, in the present climate, what do those sorts of tools and techniques mean when you're trying to bring together something like a piece of balance?
1: We, I mean, we we've said this a few times that if it wasn't for systems like Arduino and Unity and all of these other um, prototyping systems, we just we straight up wouldn't have been able to to make the game because it would have been uh, too risky of a proposition to take to. You know your Hasbro's or your Mattels, and to be frank, they wouldn't have understood what we were trying to do. So, it was instrumental in making the game because it allowed us to experiment and it allowed us to fail um, and fail fast and keep iterating. And we were able to do that on a on on a absolute shoestring budget. So, yeah, it, it, this the police balance wouldn't have existed without without these systems and also the. Um, the kind of mindset to embark on something that may fail and may fail spectacularly, especially, I mean, even in games, you'd think that games would be quite open to the idea of people trying things and failing things. But, you know, the games playing audience, uh, they're particularly critical of um, what they perceive as failure. But even now with, with kind of weird games like ours and, uh, the uh there's a things like uh, you know vvr is such a huge um talking point at the moment and a lot of the games that are coming out of there they have huge flaws but the games playing public seem to be quite open to them because they're clearly kind of breaking new ground which is a nice a nice thing actually you feel you don't feel like you're on your own you don't feel like you're trying to prove anything you're just um you're just trying something and it may work, it may not.
0: Well, absolutely. It's, um, you know, a, a rich time for experimentation. Now, I'm, I'm wondering if this is even possible because it is, um, to my mind, a very visual game. It's something which you know, benefits from from being seen. Obviously, we'll put links in the show notes so that people can go and check out the, the demo videos of it and so on. But how do you describe it to people?
1: Uh It's a a tough one.
0: The game mechanics, (laughs) the the overall goals. Is it something which translates to audio?
1: Yeah, I'll I'll do my best. So um, Beast of Balance, uh, the the easiest and laziest way to describe it is it's kind of like Jenga and Pokemon together. So the game comes with um, a load of physical pieces, so 24 of these kind of angular, low-poly physical shapes and animals, And it also comes with a base, which is the plinth. So it's like a platform. And you play it by pairing it with an app that runs on a smartphone or a tablet. And so the game plays out. It's either cooperative or... Um, come the start of next year it's going to be there's going to be a competitive way to play it as well so with the cooperative game maybe one to five players will take turns to add pieces to the tower so to the plinth so they're building a tower together but every piece that you add to the tower will wirelessly create something in the digital world that's playing out so the narrative being that we, we're we playing as gods and uh, we're trying to build a really kind of beautiful world so every every artifact that we add to the tower affects the world in some way so um, but it's not just a stacking game as well which is really important because that's one of the strengths that the digital side brings because it allows us to create systems uh, it allows us to give different artifacts very different powers so we have quite a a lot of um, depth to play with strategy and tactics to make a kind of really rich experience that you probably couldn't get from a similar type of purely um analog game
0: well that that is the interesting thing about it to to my mind anyway i mean as a kid i can remember always being very excited at christmas because we would play the game of building up a tower using matchsticks on top of a wine bottle Uh, I guess the mechanics, the basic mechanics here are pretty similar. But when you look at something like Beasts of Balance and the opportunities that it gives you to have this entirely new creative dimension, which resides within the digital space in, in the virtual sphere, that gets me pretty excited as an example of a, a new form of experience design where the things that you're doing physically with the pieces are, are directly able to have this kind of imaginative effect which is then um, sent off to exist in this, this cloud of creativity which exists within the, the virtual sphere uh, was that always the plan from the outset to, to have that, that additional dimension to it or was that something which evolved from developing it with users or from, from feedback you're getting from experts and it was
1: um, it was definitely the, the plan so we had so the studio started out with five five people um, and we'd all work together in different forms but we all come from very different disciplines so I I handled all the physical stuff, we had a, an electronics electronics engineer a very talented um, game designer, a 2D artist and um, the, the guy who's kind of running the show who also comes from a very solid game design background but the thing that we'd all worked on together in various different um, forms of couplings were games or installations for real world enjoyment uh, that, that incorporated technology. So one of the, the main reasons for making Bisa Balance was to try and really push the kind of games and the kind of experiences you can get by uh, integrating the digital side and the physical side as well. So that was definitely core from the start. And it was always our aim to have 50% of the experience on the physical side and 50% on the digital side. So something that's really important and we're really proud of is it's not just a one way interaction when you're, it's not just a case of adding a physical piece to the tower and then seeing the outcome on the screen. There's plenty of times where what's happening on the screen is going to impact the things that you are doing and the kind of choices you're making in the physical, in the physical side too. Um, the other thing that was really key for us was the idea of trying to encourage face to face play. Um, so games are going through something of a golden period at the moment, but there is a. The downside to that is we're spending an awful lot of time and our kids are spending an awful lot of time in front of glowing. Rectangles. Um, one way to handle that is to limit screen time, which is fine. You know, you can say, "All right, you've you've played for an hour, hour, so that's all you're doing today." But the other way is to try and find ways of allowing kids to play that don't involve them just sitting in front of the screen, whilst also not denying them that to the fact that all they want to do is finish the thing that you're making them sit through and go back to play Call of Duty or something. So for us, we figured if we could make a game that really that was focused on face-to-face play, but still had all of the hooks and interest that a digital game could bring, we thought that might be a quite interesting prospect for, for parents, and it certainly would be a unique prospect, yeah.
0: And have you been surprised by how the people who have had a chance to try this for themselves have, have reacted to it?
1: Absolutely, yeah. Um, it's so scary to make something that you've invested years of your life. So I think when we did the first Kickstarter... We'd been working on it for you know the best part of a year on or off, um, but then we had a solid year of development after that. And you don't know if you don't know how it's going to be, uh, how people are going to respond to it. You know, you have no idea. So you really do put yourself on the line. But the nice thing for us is almost instantly we had just fantastic feedback from from parents and kids who really got on board and they really understood what we were trying to do, and they and, it, and they seem to. They seem to understand there was a need for it that we were helping to fill. Um, but then, as well, we're getting a lot of people who are using the game in quite unusual ways that we never planned. So, we have we're actually talking to um, a handful of teachers at the moment who've been using the game in their classrooms to teach a variety of different uh, skills to kids, ranging from you know cooperative um, cooperative working to uh like motor skills, to learning about um animals. So that's quite nice. And that's something we hadn't even thought of. Um, and then just a very quick anecdote, I received a an email last week from somebody who told me that um the their daughter had a fear of animals and mm. they were finding that playing the game was uh, helping her cope with her fear of animals which is a lovely thing and she actually carries around one of our physical artifacts now to hold on to if she gets scared of an animal outside and that's lovely because that's something that we wouldn't have thought in a million years but you know that's what happens if you make something that people can bond to uh,
0: amazing yeah I, I guess as you say that's the part of the the, the fear and the courage of putting something like that, that you've been working on out there in the world but it's also part of the reward too when you see uh, people using it in in unexpected ways um, I mean, when you're going through that that process of yeah you know, listening to that kind of feedback and um, you know seeing observing how people are, are using it does the fact that this is a, a hybrid, physical digital experience changed the way you approach that kind of user research and, and user input compared to if you were just doing this, say, as a piece of physical product design or just doing it purely in the digital sphere as, as a standalone app, for instance? Has it challenged you to try some new methods to, to, to be able to really understand how people are reacting to the game?
1: Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. And, and truth be told, we're still we're still working on that to make the most of the feedback that we get. So typically, typically we will, uh, we'll try and do as much user testing in a, w- with us present or obviously not, not being involved because um, that can always color the the feedback. But quite often with this kind of project, it's not so much the verbal feedback that you get. It's, it's just watching how people respond to you. Uh, to the things you've made, because quite often they'll they'll do things that they wouldn't even question or they wouldn't even think are things that need to be fed back to you. But they'll always highlight, you know, breaks in the system or, or things that aren't clear or, or things they've misunderstood or things they don't care about as well. It's quite often with, I found with games, or especially with, well, with this project is um, you have to kill your darlings quite a lot. It's very easy to overcomplicate games like this. Uh, you get too close to it. You you think that the the heart of the experience lies in one part, when in reality, it's somewhere entirely different. And you just don't know because you're, you're living and breathing it. So having people that you can watch, uh, you can watch how they interact with each other. You can watch the things they care about and they, they don't care about and they understand and don't understand. That's vital. And I think for us, because it is a mixture of the digital and physical, we have to do that locally. So we have to, we have to see it in the flesh. It means that we, I mean, it's a big time cost for us because it's such a labor intensive purpose, but it's vital. It's absolutely vital. But now what's really good now is because we have an active user base, uh, who are really engaged and they, they want to see it change and and evolve. Um, we, we have people who are willing to test, uh, test betas of new features, um, and provide, provide feedback and we can trust that they understand what we're trying to do now because they're quite literate with the uh, the game world and the mechanics that we're playing
0: with is there a value to any of the quantitative data which might start to flow as the the user base of the game expands you know are there things that you're able to track in software about the way the game is unfolding in people's living rooms and and kitchen tables and so on which will help you think about the the next versions
1: yeah absolutely so we we have an analytics pipeline that gives us um it gives us. This is again. This is something that we're we we're, we're focusing on now. Um, it gives us uh, a stream of data that we then have to unpick to to find the the answers to the questions we're asking about. But you know things like uh, average game session and length of game. I mean that that's actually quite an interesting one. So knowing how many pieces uh, physical pieces on average players could get onto the tower. That impacts the design, the physical design of expansion pieces. So, it's essentially you're um you're tailoring the difficulty level to the uh, the experience of the of the player base, and that's that's really good because otherwise it would just be us um, doing it. To, to a level that we think is acceptable or, or fun or challenging
0: but so actually being it's able to 24 pieces that come with the game as i recall is, is that yeah that's right yeah uh, and yeah. has anyone ever managed to get all 24 onto the tower oh yeah
1: yeah it's it's totally possible yeah. it's not easy but it's definitely possible designing wow. um for i i <laughs> i always say that next time you play any kind of dexterity game that well Perhaps not Jenga, but any of the other dexterity games play real close attention to the difficulty level because it's very very easy to make it Too hard or too easy. So getting that balance is uh, is definitely been a a tough a tough thing for us to do
0: And has there been a a process of refinement since users started getting that the games try for themselves around the uh, the design of the physical pieces?
1: Yeah, so we actually, um, so as as we record this, we I think we're five days away from the end of our a, a Kickstarter for an expansion. So, we something we wanted to do from the start was to build on the platform that we've made because again, it's quite unusual to buy, you know, quote unquote a board game and for it to be able to be played in more than diff, more than one way. But with the software component, we have the ability to push new rule sets or modifiers um, to change the the way that the pieces inside are used. And that's something we, we wanted to do from the start. So the Kickstarter was for some new physical pieces, which are designed to give new and interesting ways of stacking. So there's some cantilevering, there's some pieces that can be hung, there's some new materials being used. But then the digital side comes with an entirely new way of playing it which, uh, as I mentioned before, it changes it from co-op to competitive. And that's great because it means we can change some of the functions of the pieces. We can weave into your story and you've suddenly got two games in the box instead of one.
0: Now, with the uh, technologies behind this, I'm intrigued because you you spoke before about um, your interest in some of these enabling technologies which make games like this possible in, in this day and age. When you look to the future, are there things which you wanted to be able to do with this version of the game and weren't able to, but you can see technologies that are, are exciting you and, and give you new possibilities for what you might be able to do, either with Beasts of Balance or, or the next uh, game, which comes from mm. from the company, that are starting to get you excited about what might come next?
1: Yeah. And so every day, every day, you see something and you think, oh, that could I could use that, or I could, I could make this into this other thing that I've been thinking of. Um, so that happens on a daily basis. Um, right now, we're just starting on a, on a really exciting thing, which is t- with um, Alexa, the Amazon Alexa. Um, so we've been accepted onto a program that they're running to develop prototypes for the platform. So uh, right now, our CEO Alex is in Seattle, working up a. Prototype for a game for Alexa that uses some of the Kind of skill set that we have uh, Inherent in the studio. So again the idea of linking face-to-face tabletop gaming with Technologies, so that's something we're really interested in. I think I think voice is a Is a really interesting field to start to look at especially because it has the backing of such um, such large prevalent companies um, so yeah, that that's a really interesting thing. But um, there's so many so many technologies out there. There's so many opportunities for interesting things to be made.
0: Well, it, it is an intriguing time. I mean, as you say, with things like Alexa, the the possibility that gaming extends into a, another area of you know, another multi sensory area like voice is kind of an interesting thing. But also, yeah, thinking about some of the challenges that they that may present around the future of the kind of tools, the kind of processes that you use to do this in a way which ensures that it continues to be fun for people, that it continues to inspire people. yeah, those those sort of tools, I guess, have perhaps lagged a little behind some of the emerging technologies which, enable these kind of games to happen but for people who are in the business of designing and building them such as yourself i guess there's a bit of you know making it up as as you go along with having to pioneer some of these methods and cobble together existing tools to create Mm. a workflow which actually allows you to to do that
1: Mm. yeah um and that, that kind of that goes back to the way that we work as i said before um being able to fail fast is very important for this kind of work because quite often Quite often when you're trying to use disparate technologies that haven't really been used before um they just they just won't work but it's nicer to be able to to do this from a grant from the ground up as opposed to other aspects of hardware in, in gaming which is where you 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 often get a a large one of the large electronics companies will create something that they uh, they herald as the future and then they'll put it out there for Anyone to make content for it, but the content will, generally speaking, not live up to the hype just because it's the content hasn't been built around the hardware. The content has been built to be, you know, to be fostered onto it. So, I think it's increasingly important to be able to iterate quickly, um, accept failure, and design the the experiences and the technology in parallel. I think.
0: You're based day-to-day out of Makerversity in London. Uh, How does that physical environment inform that way of working? Because it's Mm. a group of, I guess, quite like-minded early stage companies that that you're with day-to-day when you're working on these things.
1: So the story is that in the the basement of Somerset House, which is where I'm sitting right now, um, it, it used to be used for the inland revenue. And then when they up and left they just left this kind of cavernous space that somerset house offered up to be used for interesting means and so a maker community sprung up and now uh, oh that was i think that would have been five years ago or maybe four years ago but now there's upwards of 200 people working down here doing everything from game you know making games to running charities to building Stuff building buildings, I guess, um, to doing um, interaction design, jewelry making, every single thing. And the nice thing is that everybody is encouraged to talk and share advice and to help each other out. So anytime that you have a problem, there's chances are someone else in the building will have a solution or at least know a direction for you to look at. So it really does change the way that you approach problems. Where traditionally you might be a little worried about going off on a path, where you may not perhaps know the, uh, you know the, the destination, but knowing that you've just got some support is um, is a great motivator to try new things.
0: Yeah, it sounds like a very you know, diverse and and nurturing environment. One of the other things that I wanted to ask you about, Tim, because I, I must confess that I'm I've never been much of a a gamer myself um, sure. in the, uh, the the digital world, and yet games have always fascinated me as examples of experience design. Now we always have our section for the show and tell on the the podcast, and I, I know you cited in there one of your early inspirations around game design, and I was wondering if you could tell me. A little bit more about it, and and see whether or not you can pass on some knowledge about the wonders of game mechanics to someone for uh, for whom it's it's all a little bit new.
1: (laughs) Of course, yes. So um, I I wanted to mention, or I wanted to cite a very specific part of a very specific game, which I think probably more than a few of your um, your listeners will be familiar with, which is uh, the original Super Mario Brothers. So the nineteen eighty five. Nintendo, uh, Nintendo game, and very specifically, level one one, the very first screen of the game, um, and the reason that I wanted to cite that is because it's kind of gone down in. Well, it gets it it gets mentioned a lot in the game uh, kind of video game uh, journalism because it's seen as a perfect tutorial. It's seen as the perfect start to a game, the perfect way to introduce. The mechanics of a game to a player and the experience of the the game itself and when i read this i kind of thought huh you know this has a lot of parallels with the way that other design disciplines could approach the onboarding of their customers you know if if a customer approaches or a user approaches a product afresh then you've got a lot of work to do to get them on board with everything that you're, you're your thing does, you know. The cognitive load tends to be quite high. So the the thing I really like is uh, you have to picture. Have you have you played? You played Super Mario before at all? Or you, you must have seen. I, I at have. Least, I mean, I this
0: is taking me uh, back a while. Yeah, but it's it's, it's, it's funny how <laughs> distinctive that that visual impression of it is right, I and mean, I can exactly. picture it clearly in my mind despite the fact that I was never like an avid player of it it, it sure. really does stick in the mind but I, I'm curious here, what were the particular mechanics within that which you thought worked uh, so well
1: okay so picture picture the first the first screen so it is a um, so Mario's standing on the left-hand side of the screen and there's a big open screen there's no enemies there's nothing else it's just some clouds in the background now the reason that's important is because Straight off the bat, the player is given room to explore the controls. Um, they can. There's nothing else for them to do. There's no text on the screen telling them what to do, which is quite rare for games nowadays that tend to go out of their way to inform you as opposed to letting you discover things. So with, with Super Mario Brothers, there's nothing. So you start to play with the controls because that's all you can do. And you can do that in a safe environment because there's nothing that's going to hurt you. So that teaches you the basics of the control method, or rather you're discovering them, which is an important distinction. So then you start to move and the screen moves with you, but it doesn't go backwards. It goes left to right. And that teaches you that the game runs left to right. So straight away, you're centered in the world. And you know that broadly speaking, the aim of the game is to go from where I'm standing and go right, just keep going right. So that's the second thing. So you start to run. And the next thing that comes on the screen is a uh, it's one of the little uh, puzzle boxes, the question mark power up boxes. And it's flashing, but it's not moving. It's just flashing. So it's calling your attention to it without um, presenting itself as a threat. So that's telling you about the environment. And it's telling you that there are objects that you can interact with. And the next thing that happens straight after that is a little uh, Goomba, a little mushroom enemy comes on the screen and he's coming towards you. And this is the only moving thing in the world, so you immediately know that this is something different, and it's got a very angry face, which is quite a good indicator that it is not your friend. It's not going to do you. It's not going to do you good. So then, all you can do is either, if you do nothing, you die, and typically failure is seen as a bad thing. Uh, you don't want your players to to fail too much and too often. But the reason that they've introduced it in the first screen is because if you fail you don't lose a load of progress. So you're not discouraging your player base. So they're introducing the idea of death and they're introducing the idea of enemies. And it goes on and on, you know, you go go past this screen because you eventually find out that one of your buttons is a jump button. So that teaches you another mechanic. And the whole first level is about introducing little bits of, little slivers of game design, little bits of game mechanics without ever telling you, press this button to do this. And then once you get to the end of that first level, you know everything for the rest of the game. I so, feel like
0: I need to go and uh, fire up an emulator and, and re, re-educate myself about yeah, uh, yeah. Mario now. it's uh, I hadn't realized, you know, the... The, the the simple complexity, if you like, hidden behind all of that. But as you explain it, it makes total sense. And I think right. you're absolutely right about the parallels for for other areas of experience design. You know, being able to implicitly show people where the limitations are, where the capabilities are, you know, the things they want to, to avoid, how they make progress. You know, these are yeah. all techniques which could be taken to heart in 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 all areas of experience absolutely. design. I think. Yeah. Was it something which um, directly inform the way you thought about beasts of balance or is this more just something which you keep at the back of your mind as you're approaching uh, all of the work that you do in this area
1: Um, well i think um it's probably uh, so in terms of the, the actual game design i think i think it's a slightly crude um example there's there's much more um it's much more subtle and nuanced examples of good good interaction design that probably affected uh beasts of balance a bit more just mainly because i i I was involved on the game design of the periphery but this is the this is the first game that i've worked on so you know with something this complex you, you definitely reach a point where you're like okay i'm gonna let the experts uh, on the team do this bit i think i think with things like this there's such a something i've really noticed from 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 the games community which i think is is there but is different for the for other design communities that i've worked in is, is the kind of critical thought that's given to each component of of a game there's a lot of time that's given to working out why something works and why something doesn't work and i think i think that's really important because it just everybody learns when people are examining your your work or other people's work to that degree and i think for from my experience especially in architecture and, and um, industrial design when i was working in the in the arts world making uh, interaction uh, you know interactive art pieces the criticism you get would tend to be quite binary it'd either be okay this worked or it didn't work. but there's n- there wasn't so much of the nuance of saying well you know this this thing that you've done or that they've done works really well because of x y and z uh, whereas this thing doesn't work so i i really like the the, the fact that the games, games community really pick apart things that are made, really get to the essence of what's, what's working, what's not working.
0: Well, I guess people take their fun quite uh, seriously. <laughs>
1: oh yes serious <laughs> business fun yeah for sure
0: well, look Tim thank you very much indeed for coming on the show and, and sharing some of the journey that you've been on with Beasts of Balance been really interesting for me to, to learn about this and uh, you know I wish you the very best for the, the future of the game um, I suspect by the time this show goes out your latest Kickstarter um, will be complete but obviously we'll make sure we put links in the show notes so everyone can go and check it out and find out where to follow you and how they themselves can get a chance to play the game.
1: Yeah, fantastic. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a a real pleasure.
0: Well, what did you think of that? Despite the fact we've been talking about the potential of multi-touchpoint experience design for probably nine years now within the MEX community, it's still challenging to find really good examples and really smart people doing them, Um, hence being pretty excited about that opportunity to chat to Tim and hear all about Beasts of Balance and and what he's doing with the team at at Sensible Object. Now, are there others out there? There must be, right? So let me put the call out. If you know of any particularly inspiring examples, the kind where designers are combining physical and digital elements into an overall user experience. Do drop me a line. Uh, I'd love to hear from you. And perhaps you could be a guest on a future edition of the podcast. Uh, It's designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com for emails or at mexfeed on Twitter. So that's Almost it for this edition, but I also wanted to say a thank you to all of the people who have been reaching out after each episode of the podcast. I mean, just since the last show, there have been people who came to a MEX event years ago and have got back in touch to share what they've been up to. There have been new listeners who just wanted to say that they're enjoying the podcast. There have been suggestions for future guests. It's great. Do keep it coming. Uh, The whole point of doing this show every couple of weeks is to shine a light on all of the interesting things, all of the interesting people out there in the MEX community, and it's really wonderful to see that coming alive with each edition that goes out. Uh, There are show notes with links to everything mentioned, as always, at mobileuserexperience.com. You can find those in the podcast section. I'll be back soon with more, but for now...